Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hi, everybody. This is Vesna Luca, and you're listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. And on the show today, Manish Bardvai, moral leader and CEO of Innovators in Health. And he's also a fellow of the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values at MIT. So today we'll talk about moral clarity. So Manish, first, welcome to my podcast. I'm incredibly grateful that our paths have crossed thanks to our joint friend, Rebecca Henderson. I, along with some 1.1 million other people, have actually watched your TED Talk from November last year about how we need to come together to do the hardest thing there is, which is to envision and then build actually a just world. So capitalism has served us well in many ways, as you describe, but it has also exasperated injustice and inequality worldwide. So how, Manish, can we address the problems at the heart of this? How can we design more just systems? That's a great question. So I think where we start is to understand why there is injustice and do not look at a particular, if you're talking about business, to not look at this business or that business, but to think in terms of what are the structural forces that we now face. And I think taking a structural and systems view of how injustice works is sort of the first step. And I think the other thing we need which I don't think colleges are doing a great job at, is really cultivating our moral clarity and moral imagination. I think a lot of our failures today are failures of imagination. So we are very good instrumentalists. We, we know how to crunch data. We know how to strategize. We know how to execute. But we, I think, need to be more fluent in the language of morality and understand that morality is very different from fundamentalism or being moralistic or, you know, looking down on folks who might be not doing the right thing today. So I think it's, yeah, understanding how things work structurally and also cultivating moral clarity, those are starting points. So more, not moral perfection, but more like moral alertness in a way, right? Yes. Why do you think we believe so much in science, technology, innovation, design and stuff like that to really tell us what the world ought to be or, or how we should use them to create a better world? There are several reasons. First is that instruments are often tangible. They're easy to describe. You can specify what an instrument should do. You can then measure if the instrument is doing what it does. We have seen very powerful instruments that do change the material world, if not the moral world. And so I think we have the sense of control. I can design a strategy. I can actually write it out. I can measure if it's working. I can design a vaccine. I can have a trial. You know, same thing for technology. And of course, some of these instruments are very powerful. So I think it's a combination of being able to design very powerful things that can shape the world materially and how tangible these things are. We can talk about them. We can train ourselves. And, you know, the moral world is different. Uh, you have to deal with a lot of ambiguity. Uh, you have to rely on, you know, centuries of wisdom. And it really takes a lifetime to kind of begin to see the issues are thorny. It's hard to know what the right answer is and so on. So I think we are drawn to instrumentalism and we have this Whenever we are faced with a societal problem, our first response is, 
you know, maybe there is a silver bullet policy, maybe there is a silver bullet technology, maybe there is a silver bullet business model, and that's going to fix everything. And, you know, I don't want to minimize instruments and instrumentalism. We need them. But just using instruments has never made the world more just. We are not doing the right thing collectively. And so we have to talk in terms of right and wrong before we think of the instrumentation. So clarity in that sense, to be, be clear on what is right, what is wrong. Yes. Perhaps I'm just thinking if, if perhaps our tendency to kind of hope for tech or anything else to resolve things for us is also a way of saying, I can't do anything. It has to be done somewhere else by someone else, right? Then you're off the hook in a way. All of us, you know, whatever right or wrong we do, we, we are convinced that we are not the source of societal problems, that we could never be misogynistic in any way. We would never undermine women in any way. We would never create a racially unequal world. It's out of our imagination that we might be implicated in any way or be structurally part of the problem without realizing it. And I think when we are faced with this, we really have not been trained to respond. I think the world just assumes that, of course, we are all for equality. Of course, we don't want anyone to be poor. But to then take the next step and think about what I as a person can do about it. And I can understand that because these are huge problems. But I would say it's a lack of training. I mean, I, I think we all do want a just world. But if you're not trained to do it, I mean, you know, it's like I always say, you know, if you're not trained in rocket science and I ask you to design a mission to Mars, it's ridiculous. It would sound ridiculous. But I think in the moral world, that's what we actually expect people to do, to somehow, without training, be able to navigate these very difficult issues. So how can we integrate morality into the business frameworks if we start with that? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the first thing would be that we try and train people, you know, in college or in school. I mean, as, you know, integrated as part of education. I mean, as for leaders in business, I think the first sort of pillar is to separate what you ought to be doing with what you can do. And I think that's a pillar of moral clarity to not confuse those two things. Or even worse, to not use your current constraints to say, you know, this is the best we can do. You know, the world might have a lot of problems, but it is what it is. This this is the absolute killer of moral clarity. It is what it is. So, you know, we, I'll give you an example. We run a treatment program in rural India, and obviously we are very resource constrained. But there's a big difference between saying, you know, we only have certain amount of resources per patient. And so that's all we can do. And, you know, obviously we are doing our best versus saying, uh, no, I, every patient should have the same level of treatment as you or I would have. At this moment, I have all these constraints, but I'm never going to go tell a patient that because I can only spend much less on them that I value them less. So I think we have to be open if you're paying wages, which are, you know, market level wages or maybe even above market level wages, but they are not living wages, then I think moral clarity would say that you at least admit it and uh, you acknowledge that, you know, maybe you're in a business where margins are really tight and labor costs are really high. But there's a difference between saying, well, look, I'm paying above market wages and so I'm okay versus saying, yes, we need to do better by our employees. It's a problem we know of. And it's a problem we will fix because we must fix it. But I'm also thinking about how we use the language of moral clarity without kind of being easily dismissed as idealist, right? That's a trap. 
idealism is much misunderstood and sort of unfairly maligned. So to be an idealist simply means to recognize that there are two worlds, the world as it is, the one we embody with all these constraints. And then there is the world that ought to be, right? The ideal world. And to be an idealist only means that separating these two things and wanting to go from as it is to as it ought to be versus realism only thinks there is one world, the one we live in right now, right? And sort of rejects anything which is rooted in imagination and ideas. And so in, in that sense, a lot of us are idealists, but idealism doesn't mean being ignorant of current constraints. It just means having this alertness and at every time wanting to reconcile what should be happening, what ought to happen with what we can make happen right now. So I think it's a label that is worth embracing, but you're right. And especially with at least the politics in this country, it can immediately become that if you speak in moral language, uh, you're going to find yourself sort of alone or considered naive. But I can tell you, if you do not speak in moral terms, you're never going to transform your organization or inspire your employees. I think you will never be a leader. You will be a follower of trends and you will always be late. So I think if you want to lead from the front, uh, be known as the organization in your sector, that doesn't follow. That really sets the goals. Then you have to embrace that label and understand exactly what it means. And also, I think you mentioned in the TED Talk also that the fact that we are, of course, all driven by incentives that are predictable, but we are also very much driven by love, by mercy, kindness, justice, and solidarity. And I thought that was really very much to the point because that kind of human side of ourselves in work-related you know, environments is often forgotten. And that's where we need to tap into each other. Yes, absolutely. Idealism does not reject that we always have, you know, multiple motivations to do everything. But I think there is this narrative. I think I would say all of, you know, modern economics is founded on this principle that all we are trying to do is to watch out for our best interests. I mean, if you really think of, you know, I, I would say all of economic theory, a lot of political theory, you know, it's just about winning, right? Your side has to win. So it seems like, you know, it's some kind of Darwinian existence where it's a zero-sum game. And the problem with that narrative is if you grow up believing that's what the world is, then you actually realize that world. That is exactly how individuals start behaving. And then it confirms this myth, right? So a lot of injustice is myth-making. And so I think we need an alternative narrative, which is, like you said, that we care about much more than, you know, just this narrow self-interest. And, you know, if anyone doubts that, you know, 100 years ago, women had no right to vote. And we can point to the trajectory of how the world has in many ways become more just. Of course, it's, a, you know, there are many areas where we need to do a lot more work. But, you know, if we were all sort of self-centered, self-preserving people, then we would be extremely unjust. There would have been no progress made on pay equity and a lot of other things on race, on gender and so on. So, we have proof. I mean, if you're looking for evidence of our morality, there is proof. You also talk about that moral clarity and justice requires accompaniment. I'm trying to contrast, you know, the typical view that if you have some instrument, then everything sort of gets done. But you can have all the instruments, but fundamentally, 
if you are trying to make the world more just, then you have to accompany those who have been wronged. But you also have to accompany the wrongdoer. It's easy to empathize, I think, if you're working in justice with those who have been wronged. But I think if you believe in human dignity, then you you have to accompany those that you really disagree with, the folks you think are causing the problem. But what I'm trying to get at is the idea that we cannot abstractly solve these problems. Uh, we have to literally stand in solidarity with every constituency that we care about. So if it's people who have these, you know, absolutely sometimes awful low-wage jobs, then I think we have to get out and actually stand and be in the midst of the people that we want to help and really understand the problem and to see people as human, not just one dimension, and to see their agency and to be with them. I think that's a very essential ingredient of social change and and also moral clarity. So it's not an abstract. Moral clarity is not we lock ourselves in the room and read all the theory and, you know, Aristotle and Kant and all of that. I think we have to go out there and be in the midst of people. A real and true commitment. Manish, you have a PhD in, electric, in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT, and you've also been a professor at Princeton. So you know the education system, of course, well. So how can we make this moral clarity of more foundational tools to the education system? What can be done? I think there are many parts of it. The first part is our students have to understand the nature of injustice. So one of the things I look for in my classes is the way my students sort of interpret the world when they read an article. You know, are they able to read between the lines? You know, I think exposing sort of the structures, the way the world works and these loops that we don't always see each other. I mean, you know, it, at first thought it looks like, you know, what does economic justice have to do with gender justice or racial justice? Those look like different problems. But, you know, you want to see how these problems are interconnected. If you're going to devalue certain jobs, then you are also going to devalue what happens in a home and you're going to uh, devalue domestic labor and that's going to lead to you know sort of other issues so the first is to really understand structurally how injustice works i think the second aspect is then to understand okay so now i understand the problem but then what do i do to make the world more just so i think the second aspect is to really teach students how to reconcile we are not always going to be able to you know land at the ideal solution every time but how can we sort of reconcile our constraints with what we think ideally should happen? And so I think it's teaching both those things, the nature of injustice and the path to just. And it can be done in a very concrete way. I think we often throw up our hands and say, well, you know, my morality is different from your morality. We have different sets of values and so does every person. So this is completely some kind of amorphous thing that can never be taught. It's not our job to teach it. But if you look at the mission statement of any university, it's essentially a moral statement. You know, it'll say, well, we exist for the service of humanity. I mean, what does that mean? And how can you serve humanity if you aren't teaching people what humanity is in the first place? Exactly. And we're all kind of bind to some a set of human universal good core principles at the end disregarding whatever, religion, uh, geographic belonging, and, and all of that. 
And of course, we are learning what moral clarity is somehow through the families where we are raised and the environment that we are in. But doing it together with our um, friends and, 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 and university colleagues is just adding clarity to it. So that's really incredibly important. But Manish, I'm just curious, what transformational points in your life have influenced you the most? And that might also explain your commitment to moral clarity. When we sort of tell stories about ourselves, we try to find, you know, some narrative. I think it's ultimately very complicated. You know, if I simulated my life, you know, a million times, then maybe a few hundred times I end up, you know, doing this sort of work. There's definitely no sort of history in the family of this sort of work. I was trained as an engineer. I thought I would be an engineer all my life. It just happened completely, happenstance. You know, I ran into people who were doing some healthcare work in India. Uh, specifically, I ran into, you know, the Buddhist chaplain at MIT. And he was doing some work in Bihar, which is where the Buddha found enlightenment. And so this is really the Buddha's land. And, you know, I was a student. I thought it would be a student project and I visited. But I think the transformational point generally is when I started meeting patients and I saw how cheap life can be in certain parts of the world and how people are dehumanized. And mostly, I think we build up the mechanisms to be able to tune those things out and carry on with our lives. I mean, I I certainly did that growing up in India. But sometimes we are not able to. And sometimes we end up making promises to people that we will help them. And when you start doing this work, I mean, I'm trained as an instrumentalist both in terms of engineering, but also in terms of social entrepreneurship and the seven slide decks with the teams financing, you know, <laughs> and all of that. the toolbox. Yes, exactly. But when you start doing this work, yeah, you have to sit across people who are not doing the right thing and you have no executive authority over them. You know, I can't tell a bureaucrat or a government position how they should run their lab or how they should run their agency. But I do want them to do things differently without having any power over them. And the only authority you then have is moral authority. And the question is, how do you get moral authority? And then how do you wield it? And how do you engage in moral persuasion? So I think for me, that experience of working, you know, with the poor and trying to change things kind of showed me the limits of instrumentalism. You can have the right business model. You can have like everything in place, the processes, the drugs, the clinics, and yet everything can be failing because we are in a atmosphere of apathy and you need some kind of a moral awakening. So I think that was my transformation from being a pure instrumentalist to having these moral issues surface. Fantastic that um, you had that experience and that you happened to be in the right place at the right time, because <laughs> uh, given the important and beautiful work that you are doing. And I think not very many people can say that they have a job that is directly impacting, you know, 100,000 or more people's health status and life quality. So that's like an immediate result that you get through your organization that is just admirable. I'm just curious about, you said you don't have real authority, but you need to exercise your moral authority over people. Do you have examples of situations where you've had to do with tough situations with people we're exercising this kind of bureaucracy kind of power over you and the reality you're trying to change to see them actually change when you 
describe in a thorough way what is it for, why you're asking this. Oh, absolutely. So one example is when we started this work, we found that physicians were misprescribing drugs and we wanted them to change their prescription practices. And I'm first not a physician, second, I'm not from that area. But it seemed to us like a very difficult problem to be able to change behavior. And there had been, you know, efforts before us, very well-funded, massive efforts to try and get physicians to change how uh, they were treating tuberculosis. There are sort of many pieces to that. The first piece is when you yeah, sit across from a physician, part of moral authority is why I'm asking for this. So, you know, if I'm asking for this because if they change their practices, then I'm going to write some report and, you know, show how successful I've been and get some recognition and so on. So I think it helped that over time, over one or two years, physicians were convinced that you know, of course, everyone has, you know, multiple motivations, but that uh, my primary motivation and the organization's primary motivation was to give our patients the best possible treatment. And that takes time. People watch you in a community. They see how you behave and what your motivations are, how you treat people. And so when we were having that conversation, I think one thing that was established is that this is for the patients. It's not for me or for the organization. And that's a starting point. And yeah, you pointed out that ultimately the entire conversation revolved around patients and pointing out how the wrong drugs can put patients' lives at risk. And instead of just making an abstract argument, we had, of course, because we had accompanied patients we had, you know, scores of stories that we could tell physicians. We could talk about children. We could talk about young men and women and, and actually give them names and say, look, these people got misprescribed and th these are the consequences for these people. So I think we humanized the issue. For us, it wasn't some abstract, you need to change this medical protocol because it's in this journal. Uh, it wasn't an intellectual argument. It was very much to do with how this is affecting people's lives. But I think there is also another side to it, which is when you start doing this work, there's a lot of myth-making and received wisdom, right? And the received wisdom in my circles was these positions are corrupt and they're doing this, they're misprescribing to make money. They're doing this because they don't want the government system to succeed, for instance. And there was a whole lot of myth-making and you have to sort of tune a lot of that out and you have to say, well, you may be right. I don't know if you're right, but I'm pretty sure that if I spoke to 100 physicians, there would be one who is not driven by these, who really wants to do right. And if I don't find in my first 100 interviews one, I just have to interview a 1,000. But I just cannot believe that there is no physician that I'm going to talk to who doesn't also believe in doing the best by their patients. And of course, the numbers are much higher. Most physicians want to do right by their patients and those who do not do right have gone through a journey. So it's very much about also a dialogue cannot be what you want from someone. I don't think there is more clarity in that dialogue that of course I'm right. You're the physician doing the wrong thing and you will do the right thing. It's about understanding how the physician or anyone else got to this point about seeing their humanity. And in a good dialogue, both people 
come out of that dialogue with their sense of right and wrong changed. So for me, the best dialogue was when I understood that this physician has more good than I expected them to. And I think the physician has to walk away with their understanding of right and wrong having shifted. And that's a good dialogue, not a dialogue in which you go in. Of course, we go in and we have some goals for a dialogue. But ultimately, the goal is just an organizing sort of principle. What's more important is in a great dialogue, both people come out morally clear, not just one party. It's not about winning or getting your way. But apart from these transformative dialogues, as you're saying, and a little bit of a detective work in a way, what else have you developed in your, let's say, toolbox for helping people on the spot? Yes, I think the biggest thing is accompaniment. It is to absolutely immerse yourself in the lives of those whom you're trying to help. And I think if you do that, and if you can stay in the game for long enough, then you will always kind of figure out the rest of it. So it's okay to go in with a design with some ideas of intervention, but the most critical thing is to become encyclopedic about the lives of the people you're trying to help. The second thing it's sort of well recognized is to understand all the stakeholders, even those that you are actively working against. If you're an activist, you are going to agitate against some stakeholders, but you still need to talk to them a lot of those conversations might be useless and there are, you know, risks if you don't do it right. But I think you have to, you know, look at the entire system, right? And look at how that system works. So taking a systemic view, I think is critical and understanding that the biggest dimension in all of these things is a political dimension. So understanding that and accompaniment, I think those are critical things. I happen to have a lot of friends who are doctors, and very often they say to me, our job is important, but we never engage personally with the patients because it's draining us. We can't do that. It wouldn't work. And what you're describing is actually get personal. I mean, get involved, get immersed in that reality. Of course, you're not there as a doctor, but still, you're there on behalf of them. Yes, there are many reasons for doing that. You know, this is trying to get healthcare to people who don't have healthcare at all. So maybe the context might be different, but one, there is a knowledge sort of based argument to do it. How can you help folks if you don't understand sort of all dimensions of their life? So, you know, the problems for a woman, for a female patient are not the same as the problem for a male patient. The problem for someone who is pregnant are not the same as those for a woman and so on. So there are all these dimensions and so that's one. But I think the bigger thing is it's easy to see people who, for example, the poor, you know, poverty is just one dimension of someone who's poor. They are, you know, otherwise have the same humanity as you or I have. I mean, sometimes the humanity can be diminished because of all the conditions. So I think getting to know people is about humanizing people who are working, understanding that they have a lot of agency that they can actually with, with the right conditions, you know, so you can't see someone as just a recipient of aid, you know, sitting ducks to whom you have to bring everything, but to see people as full people. And in equal part, I think uh, we need to discover our own humanity. And, you know, big parts of our humanity are sort of in the dark. And the only way to discover our humanity is to get to know the other well. It is impossible for you and I, you know, in our current condition to 
fully understand, for instance, the asphyxiating or drowning anxiety of what it means to be poor. But I think to, you know, sit in the houses of the poor or along with the poor to stand with them when they're waiting for treatment, all of those at least sort of bring us a bit closer. So I think it's not just seeing their humanity, but as much, if not more, kind of discovering your own humanity. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing all of this, Manish. What is your like desired next step with innovators in health? How can you do more and what do you need help with? What we are doing sort of as a strategy is to go beyond specific diseases and work on a broader primary health platform. That's one direction. And then to also sort of go beyond health. We can't do health in isolation. We also have to think about, you know, everything from credit and livelihoods and education and a lot of other problems that get interwoven. So I think our goal eventually is to offer sort of a wraparound accompaniment where we work with families as a whole. And then, you know, even if we are doing healthcare work, we are the first, you know, if someone loses a job, we are the first one to know of these big changes that can adversely affect. So it's going from a narrower focus, from an infectious diseases focus, to sort of all of primary health and then beyond primary health. Yeah, that sounds reasonable and very good direction also, as you say, because you need the 360 kind of perspective, raising awareness, but also being preventive in, in, in that sense also. And what kind of concrete help do you need? I know you have some partners, including Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations and many others, etc. But maybe there are other types of currencies apart from maybe financial assets that you need. And what would that be? Yes. So we always welcome sort of expertise. I mean, it could be, you know, medical expertise. It could be expertise in, you know, policy in dealing with governments and getting in social messaging. So yes, you know, if people, if that's someone's specialty, then yes, I would love to hear from people and then see how we might be able to involve them in the work. And how much are you out there and how big of a team is it? How does it reality look like on the ground, so to say? So we have uh, about 100 people now on the ground. And yeah, I'm sort of glad to say that the organization is now pretty uh, self-sufficient. I, you know, get on weekly calls, which are mostly about making sure that our culture stays, you know, we, we retain our values. So my goal is sort of fundraising and making sure that our values are in place. I mean, it's much more important to us that we do the right thing by every patient than, you know, like we, we have obviously grown in impact. We started with, I don't know, 15,000 patients now. Our catchment areas are in the millions, but to me, it's still, how do you retain, when, when you're scaling, it's easy for values to get diluted. And so that's what my project at Innovators in Health mostly is, and not so much the operational stuff. What are your core values? I think it's to make sure that we treat the patient as we would treat our own, and to never forget that. And it's easy to forget that when you have all these constraints. So I think that is really the organizing value that we need to remember. And before we even think of our patients to treat everyone in the organization as we would treat our own. Treat everybody as extended family in a way, right? Yes. Beautiful. It's a very um, 
powerful and yet simple core value to follow. But of course, as you say, you need to kind of also track it and uh, make sure it lands everywhere. So how would you describe the future you wish to see? What does it look like and who's there? And We want to see everyone live in dignity. I think every human life is, you know, has incalculable worth. That's why you and I are having this conversation and that's why that's sort of our bedrock belief that you cannot put a value in human life. It's, you know, infinitely valuable. And so something that valuable should be accorded dignity in our lifetime if we can make sure that everyone can live a life of dignity and not worry about food, not worry about shelter, not worry about healthcare, not worry about a decent education. This is the only profession I know of where you want to be out of a job. I would love to wake up in that world and not have to do this work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's a good goal. And leaders who typically listen to this podcast, then if you could give one piece of advice to them, what would it be? Great leaders, the first sort of obligation they have to is their teams. And I always tell people at Innovators in Health that if you make the welfare of your team more important than anything else, uh, you earn the right to lead a team. And uh, of course, you have executive authority. Of course, you can hire and fire and, you know, you've been given that. But yeah, great leaders almost do not rely or very seldom rely on that authority and they rely on moral authority. And, you know, why would anyone follow you? The first reason they would follow you is if, you, if they believe that you have their best interests at heart and people will follow you if they see you as principal. And if they see you struggling, it's not that you're going to make the right decision every time, but people want to see you sort of struggle with making difficult decisions, even if you don't get it right every time. They want you to acknowledge uh, what the right thing to do is and when you're not able to do it, to be able to say that. And just that, to be able to voice it, your team would love to come to work in an organization like that. Be honest. And, and also, um, one thing I find very important and powerful is to, as you say, also acknowledge when you don't know the answer to a certain problem or a challenge and say, okay, I don't know, but let's find out together, right? Yes, absolutely. It's not about perfection and the stereotypes of decisive leaders. You just However difficult the problem, you bang the table and you're, you know, it's about these are complex problems, but to always sort of relate the moral component of that. Okay, we are trying to raise wages. I understand that we are not there yet and we need to do better is a much better conversation than saying we are obviously doing the best and, you know, this is some sort of excuse. But it's not just business, whether it's universities or other institutions or politics. People are just dying to hear that you share a principle that they also believe in. Even if you aren't able to fully live up to that principle, people understand that we are human, that we have constraints. But it's when the principle is not voiced, there is cynicism. Yeah, that's a good point. Since November, when you did this TED Talk and 1.1 million people saw it and applauded it and loved it, how has your life and your work changed since then? because of it, or thanks to it? I think the TED Talk was sort of, for me, a start of looking at business and jobs in the US. And I think so as innovators in health, 
get served is now on its feet and you know i have to spend less time than i once had to i think it's my attention is now sort of shifting to the people around me you know i've been in the us for more than 20 years now and i understand that my sort of comforts uh, have been based on the lives of many people whose lives i don't know so i think the ted talk for me was the beginning of going on this journey and beginning to look around me and so i think a lot of my future work will focus on making sure that you know every job in this country from which i've benefited so much every job is a job which has dignity so i think that was sort of the talk for me was the beginning of this realization what made you decide that i'm going to do a ted talk about this this is such a burning thing moral clarity i want everybody to know what that is i'm going to go out and do that what made you take that step that's not a like a comfortable thing i'd been teaching the class at princeton i just finished teaching the class at princeton and i didn't really have anything you know if i taught an engineering class i would have had some textbook and i would have had some you know lecture or something to start with and i realized that you know it took me months to even figure out how do you teach this what does it mean how do you teach students i did want to give my students tools so once they realized their moral obligation they could actually go out and do something about it the talk came sort of at the right after i'd done my class and these issues were very much on my mind and you know i was particularly bothered that we don't train our students in this but somehow we expect that the world will get more just great interesting to know last question manish what do you think the world needs most at this time see the humanity in people that we find most difficult to see humanity and so i want everyone to imagine some politician that they absolutely cannot stand and then do this very difficult thing of trying to see humanity in everyone and i think that would be a good start fantastic so thank you so much manish thanks for being on the show thanks for sharing thank you for having me it was wonderful beautiful and to find out more you'll find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com thanks for listening to the show and to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing from manish and please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it i'm vesna luka and you've been listening to corporate unplugged until next time live with purpose and remember to unplug ciao